Good morning. Before we get started, I'd like to, if I could get all the veterans to stand this morning. Anybody who's a veteran here today, would you, if you're able to, if you would stand. Those of you who are seated, I want you to look around at these men. If you, if you would re remain standing, I just want to salute you. Thank each and every one of you for your service and uh, this is the reason that we're able to come here on Sunday morning to worship without fear of reprisal. So uh, appreciate every one of you. God bless you. Thank you for your service. Now let's give the Lord a great big hand of praise. Praise God. Hallelujah. All right. All right. We're going to be in Matthew 13 this morning. Matthew 13. And I'm going to preach pastorally today. So, uh, buckle your seatbelt. <laughs> it's, easy, it's easy to take for granted when we gather here on Sunday mornings that everybody that comes here and sits on the pew and listens to the sermon and listens, sings in the choir and gives in the offering is a believer in Jesus Christ and is saved and on their way to heaven. But I, I don't have the, uh, I, I, I'm not afforded the, the, uh, the privilege of assuming that, that everybody who comes here every Sunday is a Christian. And so I'm going to preach this morning, uh, and I want you and, and I collectively to examine ourselves, whether we're saved. Uh, I, I don't preach evangelistically every Sunday. I know some preachers every Sunday morning is a get saved kind of message, and and, uh, and I do try to tie that in in every invitation. I give you the gospel. Jesus died for your sins, and he was buried, and he, he rose again according to the scriptures. But um, I want to give you the meat, the meat of the word and not just the milk of the word. We've been dealing with that some in the book of Hebrews. But I want to preach evangelistically uh, today and ask each one of us to examine our hearts. And not only for those maybe who are not saved here today, but... For those of us who are saved, and we often question why it is that when we share the gospel, it seems like often we see so little result from, from uh, the result of our preaching. And so I believe that we'll get an answer today from the Word of God if your hearts and minds are open. Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. St. Matthew says, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him, so that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spoke many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. When he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the, the fowls came and devoured them up. And some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth. And forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns. And the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell on the good ground and brought forth fruit. Some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, today I ask that you would uh, grant me the privilege to speak your word clearly and concisely. God, that you would just hide me behind the cross, that no one would see or hear me. They would hear you. And God, that the Spirit of God would open our hearts and minds, Lord. Be, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. God, maybe we're stony ground today. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, prepare the soil of our heart today to receive that good word of God. That, and let it be engrafted into our soul and let us be born again by the word of God which lives and abides forever. We're just so thankful for this beautiful day that you've made. Thankful for your word. Thankful for the privilege to be here. We offer up praises for what's going to be accomplished in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Matthew 13 is also recorded. Uh, this story is also recorded in Mark chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 8. It's recorded in, and most commentators believe that it is the same account. Sometimes in the synoptic gospels, you can't tell if they're talking about the same thing or not. But in this particular case, we know that, uh, that they are. And Matthew gives us a timestamp. If you notice, chapter one, excuse me, verse one, it says the same day uh, in Matthew. And so, in order to appreciate the context of it, you need to back up to chapter twelve and understand some of the things that are happening in chapter twelve. And I'm going to condense it for the sake of time. Uh, if you read chapter twelve, you know that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, have been in increasingly hostile. Toward Jesus Christ. And it reaches a climax toward the end of chapter 12 where they commit what we refer to as the unpardonable sin. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And they accused Jesus of doing his miracles, casting out demons by Beelzebub, who was the prince of the devils. And so uh, this is the context uh, from which we begin chapter 13. And it says, This same day Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the seaside. Now, I don't want to make too much of this, but often the house is the house of Israel, and the sea is an idiom for the Gentiles or the nations. And so what has happened in the natural uh, is, is happening in, in a typological sense, too, that Christ is now turning from the house of Israel, and from this point on, he is only going to speak to the crowds in parables, something that has been kind of unique to Jesus' ministry uh, up until this point. He's going to speak only to the crowds, only in parables. And it says in verse 2, There were great multitudes gathered together unto him. And he goes into a ship, and, he, and he, uh, the whole multitude stood on the seashore. So they're standing. It's kind of the opposite of how we're doing things today. In, in that time, they were all standing, and the teacher was sitting. So at this time, I'm going to ask you all to stand while I sit for the next whatever. Because <laughs> we want to be biblical, right? We want to do it the biblical way. I love it. People say, we do things the way the Bible tells us to do. Yeah, you do to an extent. But, uh, but anyway, so Jesus is teaching. He's seated, and he's able to reach greater, uh, greater audience. The acoustics uh, of the water provided a, a, a great enhancement for the, uh, for the message to go forth. But as we, we see that the religious leaders have rejected Jesus, but there's still many people who are coming to hear Jesus. Now, I don't think we can fully appreciate the messianic zeal that existed in the first century. I don't, I don't think we can really put our finger and, and get the temperature of the climate of that time period. You see, there was a great deal of expectancy for the Messiah. Israel is under the yoke of Rome. Okay, They're, they're miserable. They're, they're occupied. 
They're under Roman occupation, and they're sick of it. There's unfair taxation, and, uh, you know, you think you have taxation without representation? You should have been an Israelite in, in, in those days. And so there was a great deal of messianic expectation and fervency. And remember the time frame. If these folks have read Daniel, and we would assume many of them had read the prophet Daniel, they would know that there's four empires that come before the Messiah, and they've seen them. They've seen Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar. They've seen Cyrus with Persia. They've seen Alexander the Great with the Grecian Empire, the Hellenistic Empire. And now that fourth empire, the Roman Empire, uh, the beast that Daniel saw with uh, teeth of iron, the Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue with iron mixed with clay. And, and so if they're put, putting together the pieces of prophecy, they believe that the Messiah is any day about to appear. And John the Baptist has had... Uh, what we would call an apocalyptic style ministry. I mean, he's drawing great crowds, and he is the forerunner. He is the one that, that the prophets prophesied about, that there would be a forerunner to the Messiah. And, it, and John the Baptist has fulfilled that, and he has drawn great crowds. And, and there's also all of the, the news has spread all over the countryside and the hillside and the cities about this miracle birth. This old lady Elizabeth has John the Baptist. He's a miracle baby. And there's another... Miracle baby, or so we've been told, from the Virgin Mary. And, and these, these, uh, these things have happened in Bethlehem, from the house of David. And so you can understand there's a great deal of expectation here. And the crowd is coming for all kinds of reasons. And I found this to be true. People come to church for all kinds of reasons. People uh, listen to the gospel for all kinds of reasons. Some of them are, are, are noble. Some of them are uh, good. And sometimes... They are, the motives are not so pure, you see. The legalist is always concerned with the what. And Jesus is always concerned with the why. Not just what you do, but why you do it. What is your motivation? And so Jesus sees the great crowds coming, but he's not, he's not moved. And, and he's so different from us. I mean, we want to do everything we can to draw a big crowd. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've preached to big crowds and small crowds, and I would prefer to preach, preach to big crowds. <laughs> I would. And I've been in places where we had to invoke that scripture, you know, where two or three are gathered together in my name, and just a handful of people. And I preach, and, and uh, I want to be faithful to preach no matter how, who's here and who's not here. God always knows who's going to be here and who's not going to be here anyway. And some of you, by the time this is over, you're going to think, boy, so-and-so should have been here today. They really needed to hear it. <laughs> but you're here, <laughs> and so examine yourself, and, and I'm going to examine myself. So there's great multitudes coming. And Jesus speaks to them in parables. The Greek word is parabole. And it means to cast alongside of. You know, to take something, uh, a truth that is established, and to throw another truth alongside of it to illustrate and to help us to understand. And every great communicator does this on some level. They're able to communicate uh, using illustrations that people can understand. It does no good for us to deliberately try to talk over people's heads and preach over people's uh, understanding, And so Jesus did this. Now he gives the parable, and I've already read it to you, so I'm not going to read it to you again. But as far as the sermon goes, in verse 9, Jesus' sermon ends. It's over. And I know some of you are thinking, why don't you do like Jesus, Henry? <laughs> Just let it be over right now. We'll go home and think about what you've said. You're not going to be so lucky. I don't believe in luck, but you're not going to be so lucky today. But Jesus, now imagine this. 
These people have come from every town and every city. They've heard that Jesus is raising the dead. He's healing the sick. He's turning the water into wine. I mean, he's, he's doing all kinds of cool stuff. He's, uh, he's probably the Messiah that they've been looking for all along. And they gather around to hear some profound truth. And Jesus said, let me tell you about a farmer. Let me tell you about a man that's scattering seed. Okay? And this was not an unusual method of farming in that day. This was before John Deere and, and uh, M tractors or whatever. You know, I don't know that much about farming. But the, it would broadcast seed. It was a, a, a normal way of doing things in that day. And uh, so they would broadcast seed and some would fall upon the the wayside or the path. Now, it's not pavement. By the way, the parking look, lot looks good, don't it? Praise God. Looks good. So don't think in your mind of asphalt here that Jesus is so, talking about sowing seed on asphalt. But it's these uh, beaten down paths in between the common field where people would get from one field to the next. And, and you can understand with people walking on it day after day, it would get packed down. You know, it would be hard. Hard ground. It would be difficult for a seed to, uh, to get down in the, into the, the earth and germinate. And uh, when it talks about the stony places, he's not talking about a, a bed of rocks here. He's not talking about sowing seed and gravel. But he's talking about soil that has covered. It's kind of a superficial covering, uh, and there's bedrock underneath. Okay? And so uh, even though the, per the person is not deliberately sowing uh, on rocks, but just beneath the surface. It's shallow, if I could use that, that terminology. It's shallow. And then the other is among the thorns. And we know that's the crowded soil. That's the soil where, you know, you've got the seed of the word of God there, but then you've got a whole lot of other stuff in there too. And it's going to, there's a competition going on to, uh, to, to see who's going to survive. And the thorns often are going to swallow up the good seed. And then you've got the good ground. Now, as far as the story goes, the only real shocking thing is in verse 8. Now I'm told that the yield, uh, a typical yield for an Israelite farmer would have been, a really good one would have been about like 8 to 1, maybe 10 to 1, would have been a good yield. And so the only thing that's really remarkable here is the yield that Jesus promised. He says some would be uh, 100, some 60, and some uh, 30-fold, 300%. And Mark, when he tells it, he tells it in, in, in uh, ascending order instead of descending. But, you know, there's no contradiction there. So that's really the only shocking thing there. But Jesus says this, and then in verse 9, he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. That is what I would call the invitation. That, that speaks of, you know, if anybody wants to know more, you can. Whoever has an ear, let him hear. This is the invitation that he's given. And at that point, Jesus drops the mic, if I could use a common expression and he leaves okay he leaves and the message is over now we don't get this from uh from matthew's gospel but mark tells us that there's a private meeting that takes place after this and that brings us to verse 10 and the disciples came and mark tells us it was privately and they said uh jesus what are you doing why are you talking to them in parables what's going on here and obviously, they didn't understand either. You read Mark and Luke, and you find out they didn't know what was going on either. They didn't understand the parable. They said, Jesus, why are you talking this way? Why have you chosen this method to communicate? Now, at this point, you and I would say, because we've all been 
trained in, uh, in religiosity, we would say, well, <laughs> Jesus was using earthly illustrations to illuminate spiritual truths. But that's not what Jesus said. <laughs> you know, we think Jesus taught in parables because he wanted to make everything so simple that a little child could understand. And it is, by the way, that's the prof profundity of the scripture. It's, it's, uh, it's simple enough for a little child to understand, but deep enough for a grown man to drown in. <laughs> Here's what Jesus said unto them. The reason I'm speaking to them in parables, notice it's to them, it's not to us, but to them. Because it is given unto you, the believer, to know the mystery, the Greek word is mysterion, of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Now this word mystery, when we think mystery, we think about Nancy Drew or something like that, uh, or, or John Grisham, or, you know, we think of a mystery like that. But, but mystery in the biblical context is something that previously was not revealed uh, in the Old Testament, and now it's made known to, uh, to the believer. But to them it is not given. Notice it's a privilege, it's a gift. If you can understand God's word, you ought to praise God for it because it's a gift. Blessed are your eyes, for they see, because God has opened them. Thank you, Jesus. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given. And he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. You see, Jesus is not a socialist or a communist. <laughs> he gives to the one who already has. Whenever you have Something that you, you have a, a, young, a hunger and a yearning for God. God sees that hunger and that yearning and he gives you more. He gives you greater insight. But to the one who has not, even that which he has shall be taken away. Uh, you could use this analogy, use it or lose it. What are you going to do with the truth that God's given you? Therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they see not and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. Well, what in the world does that mean, Jesus? Well, he's going to explain here. We get to verse 14. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, By hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you shall see, and shall not perceive. It's amazing, isn't it, how two people can hear the same thing and get something totally different out of it. Two people can see the same thing. If you've ever been a, a witness... How many of you have ever had to give an, a, a witness report for a, an accident, car accident or something? Yeah. Okay, one person. Okay, all right. <laughs> well, it's amazing, because I've had to do this before, how a couple of people can see this thing a bunch of different ways, you know? But he says in verse 15, this people's heart is wax gross. Notice it's grown dull, and their ears are dull of hearing, and notice what it says in verse 15. And their eyes, they have closed. I know the Calvinist wants to say, well, God is trying to hide salvation from people. And only a few hand, uh, handful can be saved. But here it says that they have closed their eyes. And in response to their closing their eyes, it's a judicial hardening. God is going to give them what they want. We've read about this in Romans chapter 1. Three times in Romans chapter 1. It talks about how people want their own way, and I'm paraphrasing greatly here, but it says God gave them up to do what they wanted. God gave them up to do 
their own heart's lust. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. It wasn't that God desired that for them. It is not the will of God that any should perish. Can I get a witness? God did not create hell for man. man. Hell was created for the devil and for his angels. If you go to hell, it will be against the wishes of God. God hasn't, he hasn't set up all these roadblocks to keep you from heaven. He's kicked the door down to try to help you get there. He's gone, he's, uh, if I could use a, a really crude illustration, he's been over backwards to save your soul. Now he's quoting from Isaiah, lest they should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. Now at this point, I want you to hold your place in Matthew and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. If you can find the Psalms, just go east. Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. We get to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. This is a real popular Old Testament passage. This is where Isaiah sees the Lord Jesus Christ. High and lifted up. And his train filled the temple. Now in chapter 5, Isaiah pronounces a woe, a bunch of woes actually on the nation of Israel. Woe unto this group and woe unto that group. Are you in Isaiah chapter 6 now? But then notice what happens in verse 5. Then Isaiah is not pronouncing woes on everybody else. Then he says, woe is who? Me. John MacArthur calls this the trauma of holiness. When you finally stop comparing yourself to other people and you get a vision of how holy God is and how righteous he is. And when you finally do, your response will be the same as Isaiah's. You'll be looking for somewhere to dive underneath and get cover. Say, God, have mercy on me. Woe is me, I'm unclean. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of an un people of an unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And John tells us he actually saw Yeshua. He saw Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> what an amazing thing. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Hmm. Now, let's, let's just move over to verse 8. And also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. He's like every preacher that's ever answered the call. We're ready to set the world on fire when we finally answer that call. All right, God, I'm ready. Where do you want me to go? I'm eager. I'm ready to go wherever you want me to go. And God says, Well, I've got a unique assignment for you. <laughs> he says in verse 9, Go and tell this people, Hear you indeed, but understand not, and see you indeed, but perceive not. I'm going to send you to preach to people who won't listen to you. That's exciting if you're a preacher. <laughs> God, I can't wait. What would be better than preaching week after week after week and folks not listening to what I'm saying? Make the heart of this people fat and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed. <laughs> and I love the honesty of Isaiah in verse 11. What, you notice what his question is. How long have I got to do this? He doesn't say, yes, Lord, I'm in it for the long haul. <laughs> if it's 100 years, I'm ready. I'm prepared. I've done my seminary training. Nope. He says, God, how long have I got to do this? Because this doesn't sound like fun to me. You know, I answered the call, 
And now you're telling me you're going to send me to a bunch of people who are not going to listen to me. And the Lord says, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man and the land be utterly desolate. The Babylonian captivity is just around the corner. Nebuchadnezzar's, you know, he's, he's going to be coming in before too long. And, but he says in verse 13, but yet in it shall be a tenth. There's a tithe unto God. There shall be a tenth, and it shall return. It shall be eaten as a tail tree and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. And that's where we get uh, the doctrine of the remnant. God always has a remnant. But what's the ratio here in Isaiah's day? Let's go back to Matthew. In, Matthew, in Isaiah's day, the ratio is 90% is going to reject. And only 10% is going to embrace it. That's not great. That's not a great ROI. <laughs> Amen? So we get to uh, Matthew 13. And Jesus says, well, uh, you know, Jesus gives us a little bit better outlook. He says you got 25% that's going to yield uh, a return. But he says in verse 16, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. If you can hear the word of God, if you can see it and understand it, if you can hear it, and, and it comprehend it, you are blessed. You have something to praise God for. Sometimes we think, well, I don't have anything to be thankful for. Rubbish. You have a million things to be thankful for. All right, verse 17. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired... To see those things that you see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. What a great privilege it is to be a new covenant believer. I mean, you know, when we read the Old Testament, sometimes we think, wow, it would be cool to see King David kill Goliath. It would be really cool to see the, the waters part for Moses. It would be cool to see the miracles that Elijah and Elisha did. It would be really neat to see uh, Elijah taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And all of that is great but it pales in comparison to your privileges as a new covenant believer. The writer of Hebrews says we have a better covenant established upon better promises. And that's a great, a glorious thing. They all look forward to your day. They did. You get to the book of Hebrews, and we're studying that great book. Join us on Wednesday night. You read that, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. It talks about Abraham by faith and by faith Noah. And it says that they all look forward to our day. Because we, uh, without them, uh, are not perfect or complete. Verse 18, and now we get the exposition of the parable of the sower. You thought I'd never get there, but here we go. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. Verse 19, by the way, this, uh, um, this is the wayside soil. And remember from verse 4 that the fowls of the air came and devoured it up? It'd be interesting sometime to do a study about the birds in the Bible. They often have a satanic connotation to them, birds and fowls. And I'll just whet your appetite for you to look at it. Now, he says, when anyone hears the, the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then comes the wicked one and catches, catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he that receives seed by the wayside. Now, I think Mark and Luke talk about Satan, how Satan comes immediately to steal the word of God. Does the devil come to church? Well, you better believe he does. Because as surely as I'm sowing the seed here this morning, the fowls of the air are circling around, just hoping that some falls to the ground. 
It's like, uh, it's like seagulls at your favorite beach spot. I remember when the kids, they used to make me so mad. We'd take them to the beach. I'd say, whatever you do, don't feed the stupid seagulls. <laughs> and you know what happens, right? You, they start throwing them, and then they all descend on you. And that's the way Satan is. He's like a seagull at your favorite beach spot. He's just waiting for, for the seed to, to hit the ground. Now, here is where the modern methodology, the church growth gurus, here's where they get it all wrong. Now, I know that this is referred to as the parable of the sower, but there's not really a lot of exposition on the sower himself. But the, the emphasis is on the type of soil, right? The type of soil here. But here's where the ch church growth gurus get it all wrong. They say, well, the problem is with the sower. Uh, we need a more educated man we need more education for our men. Uh, we need to get Dr. Fahrenheit in here. He's got more degrees than a thermometer. <laughs> and maybe he can expound upon the great truths of Scripture and we will all understand. Now, I'm not against education. That's not a, that's not a, a, a remark against education. I'm for it. Reading, writing, arithmetic and all that good stuff. I'm, I'm for it. I'm in favor of it. Well, we just need a more polished man in the pulpit. Paul said, I determined not to know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. <laughs> God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Not foolish preaching. I've heard enough of that. You have too. But the foolishness of preaching. God has chosen. The problem is not with the sower. Okay? And the problem is not with the seed. The seed is what? The Word of God. And so some people say, well, uh, in order to get a better response, we've got to repackage the seed. We've got to change the message. Now, listen to me carefully. The methods change. They have to. I, I don't preach, you know, I don't do revivals riding around on horseback anymore, going from town to town. And I'm thankful that I have a microphone and a PA system keep me from ruining my voice. I thank God that we have the means of the Internet to get the, the, the message out to a greater audience. So the methods change. They have to. But the message must remain the same. Jude said it's the, the message that was handed down once for all. The faith that was handed. I'm preaching the same gospel that Matthew preached, that Paul preached, that John preached. And it's a great privilege. I stand in a long line of those who have preached this same gospel. Paul says, if any man preach any other gospel, then that which we have preached, let him be accursed. And yet we have whole denominations now that have decided, well, we're going to, we know what God says, but that's really hurting our numbers. And so what we need to do is be a lot more inclusive. Because see, Jesus, he seems a lot too exclusive, you know. Jesus was exclusive. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so now we have men like the Pope who say, well, you know, our brothers, in, in, uh, our Islamic brothers, they worship a different God than we do. The God of Islam is not the God of the Bible. It's not. 
Oh, y'all didn't like that. I told you I was going to preach pastorally. It's okay. I'm not preaching for applause. I'm preaching to please the master. And we've said, well, the problem is with the seed. We've got to change the message. We've got to make it more palatable, you know. We've got to get rid of all this cross stuff and just positive thinking and prosperity and, uh, and name it, claim it. You know, if you just preach, just be less of a preacher and more of a motivational speaker. That's what a lot of these preachers are. The Bible says in the last days that men will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. You know, they, they want to hear something. And notice the man by the wayside, he's not necessarily an irreligious man. He's a religious person. The Pharisees were deeply religious, but their hearts were hard. I was praying last Sunday, and I, and I feel like the Lord spoke this to me, and it really shook me. It rattled me. God said, you can love the Bible and be lost. The Pharisees loved the Bible. They read it every day. They were lost as lost could be. Most of them were. Nicodemus was the exception and some others. Joseph of Arimathea. They read the Bible every day and they were lost. There are people who love to come to church and they're lost. Oh, it's going to get quiet, I'm sure. Because we come to church for all, a variety of reasons. Some come because it's what we've always done. Right? Mom and dad brought us up going to church. That's what we do. We get dressed up. We wear nice clothes. We come to the house of God. We see the people that we know and we love and we're familiar with. And we, and we, like, we even like preaching. You can enjoy preaching and be lost. Even Herod called for John the Baptist to come entertain him. You can enjoy good preaching and be lost. You can sing in the choir and be lost. You can preach behind a pulpit and be lost. I'm convinced there's a myriad of pastors that are not saved. I'm convinced. And I know because of the message they're preaching. You can go to Sunday school. You can have a pen for perfect attendance and be just as lost as lost could be. You can be lost. Someone was, I was speaking with a believer uh, earlier this week, and we were talking about the, the joy of grandchildren, you know, but you know, that's a privilege that God himself doesn't have. God doesn't have grandkids. He only has children. You can't get to heaven on what mom and daddy did. So the problem is not with the sower, and the problem is not with the seed. God's gracious, you know. He sows the seed uh, even knowing that some won't receive it. He's, he's still gracious enough to sow the seed, aren't you glad? God is merciful. This is the one who received the seed by the wayside. That's the hard heart. Okay? That's 25%. Let's get to the next 25%, verse 20. But he that received the seed among the stony places, the same as he that hears the word, and uh, immediately, King James says anon, immediately with joy, receives it. Yet he does not have root in himself, but he endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. The Greek word is scandalizo, offended, scandalizo. And you might guess where we get our English word, scandalized from. Why is he scandalized? Because of the word. Because of the, dem the demands of discipleship are too great for him. Now, he here's where you're really going to get mad at me. <clears throat> because it shows that there will be some who immediately respond to the word of God and sometimes even with joy, but they're not saved. 
And I think sometimes we do ourselves a great disservice. Now, don't get nervous. I'm not going to propose that we remove the altar area here. But I think sometimes we fool ourselves with these altars and things. And we convince ourselves, well, if I walk up front and come to the altar, I'm saved. Maybe. Maybe not. If I shake the preacher's hand, if I bow my head, if I raise my hand at the close of the sermon, when every head is bowed and every eye is almost closed, but you know you're peeking because you want to see who's... <laughs> you're squinting out of that one eye. Maybe, just maybe. I am not a proponent I'm not a fan of Christian cliches, and one of my least favorite is once saved, always saved. Now, listen to me carefully. I believe in the eternal security of the believer. I believe that if you're truly saved, the one who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. And if you're truly born again, it is eternal life. You are in the hand of Jesus, the hand of the Father, and that's a good place to be. It's better than all state. But here's what we often, when we hear once saved, always saved, here's what we sometimes think in our minds, because what we hear is often different than what the truth is. We, we hear, okay, if I come here and I pray a prayer one time, I'm good to go now. Hey, I, I'm, I've, I've been in ministry long enough to know that people believe that stuff. We have what we call a transactional uh, method of salvation. You know, I've punched my card, I've, I've, uh, you know, I've swiped my card. I've done this. I've done the deed. And now I'm free to go as I please. That's a heresy. That's a heresy. I believe in eternal security. I don't believe once in an altar, always in heaven for all eternity. I believe that you have to persevere in your faith. And by your perseverance, you prove that you are saved. It's not holding on to Jesus. You know, it's, I'm not saved by holding on to Jesus because, you know, I might let go. He's holding on to me, thank God. But by me holding on to him, that proves that I'm truly saved. I'm truly born again. And you just sit still with me. I know you don't believe it, but, but just sit still. You'll believe it before it's over with because God will help you. He'll plow up that stony ground. I want you to see it in action. Are you ready to see it in action? Yeah, you are. John chapter 6. Because <laughs> I know some of you, for some of you, seeing is believing. John chapter 6. Now, this is a very, very familiar verse of Scripture, chapter, uh, place in the Scripture. It's where Jesus feeds the 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So probably 15,000, 20,000. I mean, if we're, if we're being real about it, realistic. That's a lot of food. You know, we get nervous if 200 people show up for homecoming. Like, what are we going to do? Am I going to have to go to Bojangles? That's always my thought on homecoming. Y'all were thinking about, I can't wait to see my dear friends from days gone by. And I'm like, am I going to have to go to Bojangles? Because <laughs> no preacher wants to run out of chicken, you know. They didn't want to run out of wine at that wedding there in Cana of Galilee. I don't, the preacher don't want to run out of chicken on homecoming. It ruined my name forever. <laughs> and one time I preached here for homecoming, and it was darn close. <laughs> There, there wasn't no white meat for me when I got up there to eat. I'll just put it that way. All right. <laughs> Jesus has fed the 5,000. Look at verse 13. Are you in John chapter 6? Okay. Therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. So uh, they had leftovers. Praise God for leftovers. <laughs> All right. My wife says she don't like leftovers. She's missing out. <laughs> Verse 14. 
Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, what did they say? This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. Okay, that's a profession of faith. This is the guy. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. And notice what it says in, G, in, in verse 15. Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to do what? It sounds like they've embraced him as a Messiah, doesn't it? Hey, this is the dude. This is the one we've been waiting for. And he departed again into a mountain himself alone. You see, Jesus understood something they didn't, that he was not going to be able to assume the throne until he assumed the cross. There's no crown without a cross, okay? They did. They were loaves and fishes Christians is what I call them. Loaves and fishes Christians. Get over here. We're still in chapter 6. <laughs> There's a big crowd, right? And everybody's excited. And we're ready to make Jesus king. And then in verse 53, Then Jesus said unto them, that same group of people, by the way, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Oh, man, Jesus, what in the world are you talking about? We're trying to draw a crowd here. I can see the, the, uh, the, the disciples. They're probably gasping in horror at this point. You know, Here we are getting ready to establish the kingdom. <laughs> and Jesus is like, you need to drink my blood and eat my flesh. Like, no, 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 no. And I know they thought this because you just sit with me here. Okay, keep going with me. In verse 54, Whoso eats my flesh and drinks my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. Boy, Jesus is not concerned about drawing a crowd, is he? He's not. He, he obviously didn't read the book about how to win friends and influence people. He didn't go to the conference on church growth. He, he missed out on that. Now, in verse 60, many, therefore, of his disciples. Who? Doesn't say the, the, the unbelievers, does it? Many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? I can't stomach this, Jesus. I was okay as long as you were healing people. I was okay as long as you were giving me nice little parables about seed, mustard seed, and, uh, and, and oysters and stuff. But now you're talking heavy-duty stuff. What did Jesus say? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, does this offend you? You know what the Greek word is? Guess what? Scandalizo. It's the same one Jesus used in Matthew 13. They were scandalized by what Jesus said. Now, Look at verse 66. I think it's interesting. I know the chapter, verse, and divisions were added much later. But isn't it interesting that John 6, 6, 6 says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Why? Because they counted the cost, and they decided it was too great. The cost of discipleship was too good. As long as he was feeding us loaves and fishes, as long as he was the donut man out there in the wilderness, he was okay. But now he's making demands on me. And he's saying he's got to, he's, he can't just be Lord of some, but he's got to be Lord of all. That's what that whole eating of the flesh and drinking of the blood is. It means your total allegiance is to Jesus Christ. That he is your Lord and your Savior. And with that, they were scandalized. I want you to notice in Luke chapter 8, and then I'm going to move on from this, but it's very important because I believe there are many people who have had an emotional response to Jesus. They've gotten excited about the message. And we see them all the time. They'll come, and often the people who are among the stony places, they come to Christ out of some crisis. Maybe they've gotten a bad doctor's report, and they think Jesus is going to fix it for them. They're going to get healed, or 
You know, they want to get saved if, if they think they're a terminal case. Um, many times after a divorce, you know, somebody goes through a difficult time and they need God to put their life back together again. Many times it's because they've suffered a, a setback. Maybe they've lost a job. Maybe they've lost uh, a parent. Maybe they've lost a spouse or, or some loved one. That's why I'm not real fond of doing altar calls at funerals. And I don't criticize anybody that does. But I understand that most people in that period of time, they're not thinking rationally. They're thinking emotionally, you see. And after the emotions wear down, as they do, many times they realize, you know, I, I don't, this is not what I signed up for. Are you in Luke chapter 8? Verse 13. Those on the rock are they which, when they hear, receive the word with joy. Notice again, there's an emotional response to the preaching of the gospel. They receive the word with joy, but these have no root. And notice what it says. They for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. So it is possible for a person to show some glimmers of hope to spring up quickly. And by the way, those seeds that are sown among the rocky soil, that's why they spring up so quickly. Because there's no depth of earth there. They don't have to contend with all that. And so as soon as the sun comes up, they shoot out. Skip Heisey calls them Alka-Seltzer Christians. They fizz real quick, and then they fizzle out. And we've seen it, haven't we? Somebody gets so excited, and for weeks, maybe six, six weeks or six months, they're in church every time the doors are open. They want to be at Bible study. They want to be at prayer meeting. And then all of a sudden, you never see them again. And you wonder what happened. What happened to them? Well, many times it's because they had an emotional response to something. But they didn't truly count the cost. All right, let's get to the next soil, back to Matthew 13. We've talked about the hard ground, the hard heart. We've talked about the, the, uh, the stony ground, the shallow heart. Now we get to the crowded heart. Verse 22, Matthew 13, 22. He that had received seed among the thorns... It's he that hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Ugh. And I think in, uh, in the course of my ministry, this is what I've had to contend with more than anything. I've met very few people that were just absolutely stone cold to the gospel. Some are. But here's what I find. And I want to offer some hope for you because at one time I was one of these people. You say, well, can thorny soil ever become good soil? I believe in proof. This is not a message of condemnation. This is a message of hope. Thorny soil. It's the crowded heart. You know, we see these in various examples. We see the, the wayside soil is the Pharisees, right? They don't want to believe. They refuse to believe, and so they can't believe. Then we see those that are sown by the the, uh, the stony places. These are the, the loaves and fishes crowd. These are the ones that are coming to see a miracle. We want to, see, we want to be entertained. It's, it's shallow. A lot of churches, a lot of preachers are, a, a, you know, they're a, a mile wide and an inch deep. Come on. But now we get to the crowded heart. And he's like the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. Master, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I've kept all of the commands since I was a little boy. And Jesus said, well, there's one thing you lack. Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, take up the cross and follow me. And that was too much. As far as I know, he's the only one that ever came to Jesus and went away disappointed. 
There may be others. You feel free to point it out to me after the service. But as far as I know, he's the only one that truly came to Jesus asking uh, for salvation and went away disappointed because his heart was crowded. Now, it's okay to have stuff. It's not okay for stuff to have you. There are a lot of wealthy Christians in the Bible. You, you know, Abraham was a rich, rich man. Job was a wealthy man. Barnabas, we believe, was a wealthy man. There were others in the New Testament. The Scripture points them out that they were people of substance. Uh, there were three women that Luke mentions that supported Jesus financially. They were well off, they, apparently. It's not a sin to have money. It's a sin for money to have you. I, I hear it misquoted sometimes. People say money is the root of all evil. No, it's not. The love of money is the root of all evil. And what I found in my own experience is that sometimes some of the wealthiest Christians are also the most generous. They give. And, they, and God gives. Do you know that's a gift of the Holy Spirit? There is a gift of giving. Did you know about It's in Romans chapter 12. Don't turn there. But there is a gift of giving. Some people God has blessed supernaturally to be able to be a blessing financially to the body of Christ. It takes money to do ministry. Now, now don't look at me so sour. How many times do I preach about money up here? Never. I, I mean, I shouldn't say never, but you, you seldom ever hear me preaching about money, but it takes money to do ministry. And God has blessed this church. Thank, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that he has. But, but we have to be a giver, you know. But, but these folks have tapped into this principle that you cannot outgive God. But the crowded heart is the one that says, you know what, Jesus, I can't give up this thing, you know. And it's different for everybody. For some people, it's a job. I, you know, if I, if I commit myself to Jesus, I won't be able to work seven days a week and give my life to make as much money as I can. You know what? Some people work seven days a week. They work their whole life, and then they, they finally get to the point they, they retire, and they get sick, and they die, and they don't ever get a chance to enjoy it. For some people, it's a relationship. I would come to Jesus, but if I do, I know I'll have to give up this thing, this person that I hold near and dear to me. I'll have to give up this circle of friends. And some of them are not your real friends anyway. I found that out when I got saved. A lot of my so-called friends, they looked at me and said, oh, you're just going through a phase. You'll grow out of it. And one of them that laughed at me, he's now a preacher, so I think that's funny. God has a sense of humor. Let me, t let me tell you a little bit about the crowded heart. When I was... When I was a senior in high school, and I'm just, God wanted me to share this with you this morning. I didn't plan to share this with you, but he wants me to share it with you. I started playing the guitar when I was about in the third grade. And uh, I wasn't all that, that great, but I, I was able to play some things. By the time I was a senior in high school, I could pretty much play anything I wanted to. If I could hear it on the radio, I could play it. And God had just blessed me that way. And my intentions were to, to become a session player in Nashville. And, uh, and I've had guys who play. I'm not going to drop names here because you're not impressed with it, and I'm not impressed with it either. You know, celebrities, they put their britches on one leg at a time, just like you do and I do. But I've had guys playing with big-time musicians that have told me that I had what it takes to, to make it. Right. And that was all I wanted in my life. And I remember people would witness to me. And to this day, I'm so ashamed uh, I remember my mom was talking to me about coming to Jesus. She said, you, you need to get saved, Henry. I said, I don't care anything about that. I'm going to be a famous musician. I'm going to play on the records of all these famous guys. I don't care about it. She said, what if you go to hell? I said, I don't care. 
As long as I get to, as long as I get to do what I want to do, I don't care. And I'm ashamed to stand here and tell you, but that's where my heart was. My heart was, music was a God to me. And some other folks have got other things that are a God to them, sports. I would come to God, but I want to give up my sports. I know some people who, who know every stat on a baseball player and don't know a Bible verse. Don't know anything about it. Now, I like sports. I'm not preaching against sports. I'm talking about a crowded heart. I'm not preaching against music. I love music. But music's not my God anymore. Jesus is. I'm not against music. I love it. God created it. God created music. Sometimes I hear music and I just think, man, God Almighty is, is so amazing that he created this. Art, there's nothing wrong with art as long as it's not profanity. God created art. Just look around you, man. You, our God is the greatest artist who ever lived. You ever looked at a painted sunset? A sunrise? A mountain range? Man, God created those things. But the crowded heart says, if I come to Jesus, I'll have to give up this thing, and I'm not willing to give it up. And what eventually happens, inevitably happens, is that the thorns choke out the word, and no progress is made. He becomes unfruitful but then we get to the last group verse 23 but he that receives seed into the good ground is he that hears the word and understands it and he also bears fruit and brings forth some 100 some 60 and some 30 fold this is intended to be shocking it's intended to be miraculous and it shows that the believer when he sows the word of god he's able to get an exponentially greater return than his initial investment. We see that when Jesus speaks of the, the judgment of the believer. When the believer appears before the judgment seat of Christ, and Christ says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will make you ruler over many. That's 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. God is able to do that. And I want to say to you that if you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you'd be amazed at what God can do with your life. That feeding of the 5,000, you know what started all that? It was a little boy's lunch. A little boy said, Jesus, you can have my lunch. And Philip was crunching the numbers. He's like, you know, we'll never be able to feed all these people. He was a bean counter. You got to have those in the disciples too. Everybody can't be a... Uh, you know, this, that, or the other. But we, we need bean counters too. Some, sometimes the people got to say, Pastor, we can't spend that money. <laughs> Preacher, we, don't, we, you know, we need to be a good steward. But one little boy, he said, I don't have that much, but you can have what I got. And a little boy's lunch that day fed how many? 15,000 people maybe? That's because God is able to do much with your little Little as much when God is in it. And instead of us looking around and saying, well, God, if I only had this, I could do that. If you would just give me this, then I could do that. God says, no, you give me what you've got. However minuscule it may seem to you in your own es estimation, you give it to me and watch what I'll do with that. And I bet I could go around the room and, and you could all give me testimonies of time when 
you thought you weren't going to have enough and God bless you with more than enough. Because he's not the God of just a little bit. He's the God that's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. So as we close here, I want you to think about what kind of soil is the soil of your heart? What are you trusting in as the basis of your salvation? What is, the, 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 what is your assurance? Is it based on coming to an altar and praying 20 years ago, 30 years ago? Maybe it's even getting baptized. Read the book of Acts. I think over in the 8th chapter, there was two men that got baptized. Only one of them was saved. An Ethiopian eunuch was saved. Simon, we know him as Simon the sorcerer. He got baptized, but he was lost. Being baptized doesn't save you. Joining the church doesn't save you. Being related to a Christian doesn't save you. Because God doesn't have grandchildren. He has sons and daughters. This is a personal thing. And this is the most important decision that you can make in all of eternity. You know? I mean, people, they make choices all the time. This is the most important choice you could ever make. And some of you are thinking, well, I've got time. You know, that's the biggest lie the devil has ever told any of us, is that we have more time. Maybe later, maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe next year, or maybe just maybe I'll just wait till I'm on my deathbed and just like the thief on the cross, I'll give my heart to Jesus. You might not ever have that opportunity. I dare say death probably comes from most unexpectedly. Most people don't have the privilege to plan for their, uh, their leaving this world. Most people get up in the morning not knowing that they're going to die that day. That's, that's the way it is for most of us. We get up not knowing when we're going to leave. And the Bible says that every man, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this is the judgment. Every person in this room is going to stand before God at one of two places. If you're saved, you're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what you've done. It will be a judgment of works. You'll, you'll not lose your salvation. But if you've not done anything for God or if you've done it with the wrong motive, it'll burn up before your very eyes. I don't have time to go into all that. But if you don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, you will meet him at the white throne judgment. And I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't give a rip about when anybody else thought about me because on that day you will not stand with other people before God. You will give an account of yourself. And he won't ask you what your so-called friends thought about your commitments to him. He will say, what did you do with what I did for you? What did God do for you? I'm glad you asked, just ever so briefly. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He was tempted in every way, just like you are and I, and I am. And so he can relate to us. But there's one thing he can't relate to, and that's sin, because he never sinned. And because of that, he is now the perfect sacrifice for you and me. Because God's standard is not 99%. God's standard is not pretty good person, pretty good fella. God's standard is absolute perfection. And the only way you and I will be perfect before God is if we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ placed on our account. And here is where the invitation comes in this morning. If you have never fully trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and made him the Lord of your life. I'm not talking about making bargains with God. We've all made bargains, haven't we? God, if you'll just get me out of this jam this one time, I promise I'll do better next time. Those never work, and God's not impressed. He, he doesn't, he's not bargaining. God is, is outlining all the terms 
and conditions of the negotiation. And that is that you come to him with your righteousness, which is as filthy rags. And you say, I offer my filthy rags in exchange for your perfect righteousness. And if you receive him as Lord and Savior, he said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God will not turn you away. Would you stand? I'm going to read to you one verse of scripture from Acts chapter 14. In Acts chapter 14, the apostle Paul had been going from town to town and had been preaching the word of God. He had been preaching to large crowds. Now in verse 21, Acts 14, 21, it says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. He went back to the places he had already preached. If I could say it this way and, and with a little bit of license here, he had already held crusades there. But he went back, and he says in verse 22, confirming the souls of the disciples. That's what I'm doing here today. You might say, well, Henry, why are you preaching to a bunch of Christians? I'm confirming your soul today, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Now, in Luke's version of the parable of the, so of the sower, he says that the good ground, it produces fruit with patience. The Greek word is hupomone. It means under, under persecution, under stress. Being a Christian is hard. This is not easy believism. It's not if you come up here, God's going to solve every problem in your life, and you're going to have a rose garden from here to glory. That's not the offer. The offer is you can have eternal life in Jesus Christ, and that's better than anything this world can afford. And so if that's you this morning, if you have discovered you're not among the 25% that are good ground, if your soil has, has been thorny and rocky, I pray that God has already done his work and prepared it. And if that's you, would you come and pray? Mm -hmm.